All right, we are back. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this edition of the 615 Collector. Today is Thursday, February 23rd. My name is Doug Turner, and my partner here is Brandon Turner. Yeah, and a quick reminder at the top of the show that we take no sponsorships. We don't get paid to promote anybody, which is intentional, as we try to stay conflict-free, at least from anything other than our own biases. Yeah, and we actually have a guest interview lined up for today. So um, it's actually part two of an interview that we did a while back. We did it in the spring of last year and said we needed to have this guy on back on the show for part two because we didn't get to cover everything we wanted with, to with him the first time. And so, yeah, we're going we're gonna to get the chance to do that today. We've got the retired executive of the Nashville Predators, Jerry Helper, is going to be back on the show. He's had an absolutely fascinating career. It started with his hometown Buffalo Sabres uh, back when he was uh, just out of school. And then he was uh, with the, actually with the league office in the NHL for, for some time, several years and then helped to uh, get the Tampa Bay franchise, which was an expansion franchise at the time, helped to get them started and get them off on a successful path and then came here to Nashville to do the same thing when the Nashville was uh, Predators were an expansion franchise for league he came here and had been with uh, Nashville ever since and retired what a year or so ago um, he's also worked with the Olympic team and he you know helped the league organize organize some of their all-star games and weekends and so forth and um, just been involved in a ton of interesting events in professional hockey, and so really looking forward to having him back on and talking with him more about that. And by the way, I would say if you have not listened to the first interview we did with him, it is episode 26. I definitely go back and listen to that one in addition to um, taking this one in uh, because I, for in preparation for today to kind of remember all the things that we covered, I did go back and listen to that and. I have to say, not this isn't tooting our own horn. It's more it's tooting Jerry's horn because I have to say it was an absolutely fascinating interview. He was a yeah, lot of fun to talk to and had a lot of interesting stories. And the same is true today. We've got a lot of good stuff planned today, so lo really looking forward to talking with him. But before we get into that, let's touch on a couple things. We'll we'll do a little bit of hobby news and halftime report. Go over some card leases, record sales. Talk a little bit about the NBA All Star Weekend. We we'll do jersey numbers. Number, show number 70 day kind of a, a hodgepodge of stuff and maybe getting started right off the gate bat here speaking of hockey so the nhl trade deadline's coming up it's on march 3rd so we'll be watching for that not a ton of stuff happening just yet but i think there's going to be quite a few big trades in fact the predators there's been a lot of talk which we'll get into with jerry as well about whether the predators should shake up the team and make some big moves although pred's got some bad news today which is ryan johansson is out for 12 weeks after having surgery on his leg he took a skate blade to his lower leg against vancouver which is kind of mm. scary and he, he had kind of went out of that game, limped. He was seen in crutches afterward. He went in for emergency surgery. It was either that night or the next morning and came out today that he's going to be out 12 weeks. And I know he was one of the ones they were talking, you know, that people have been rumoring, talking about as someone that they may you know, potential consider trading. And, you know, who knows if that now has an impact on that. But I got to say, that's kind of scary. You know, I've always wondered. I feel like I'm kind of surprised that, to be honest, that that doesn't happen more often in hockey. You think about, you know, oftentimes around the net when – bodies are flying around they've got those sharp skates on it's kind of surprising people aren't getting slashed more by those skates in some ways how many times are you getting kicked by people in other sports i mean yeah 
I mean, like you, well, you never take you, you rarely take cleats to the leg in other sports, really. Or like, eh, maybe that's true. I, but but I cleats aren't I like I don't blades really, in hockey. Yeah, but like I'm you, saying, the blades are at the bottom of your shoe. How often does the bottom of your shoe contact another player's yeah. leg in any sport? Like yeah. I can't remember the last time I kicked anybody playing basketball. Yeah, that like, might be true. I, I don't know, man. But I think about hockey's like the a little goalie. bit different because it's a little bit faster pace. But yeah. I mean, uh, it's sometimes when the goalie's flopping around the net and guys are around the net, you feel like someone's gonna take a skate to the. Well, he he did against Vancouver. It's kind of scary stuff, but yeah, it's uh, man. I tell you, hockey's a tough sport, physical sport from that perspective. Last time we mentioned that Diana Taurasi in the WNBA had not yet signed free agent. Well, literally like the next day after we recorded, yeah. came out that she signed with Phoenix. So she's going back to Phoenix Mercury. They also did say they signed Brittany Griner back. So Phoenix is going to be. You know, I know we talked about Vegas. We talked about New York. Phoenix should have a pretty decent team as well. Maybe not quite the same on paper, the same roster, you know, competitively speaking, as as they are as stacked as Vegas and New York, but they should have a pretty good team. Well, I mean, they were in the finals the year um, before last year when they had Brittany Griner. Yeah. So I mean, basically the same team. Yep. I mean, they were in the finals with it. So. Yeah. So. WNBA season should be fun to watch this year with those teams. And speaking of the WNBA, there was some big news this past week because there was a record-setting sale of a WNBA card, not just for this player, but for any WNBA player ever in the history, and that was Sabrina Ionescu, our beloved Sabrina, who's an Oregon Duck. And so we are. I've got a few of her cards in the collection, a big fan of hers, and think she's going to have, hopefully, going to have a long and promising career ahead of her. Uh, but one of her cards, it was the 2020, that's her rookie card, Panini Prism, uh, the WNBA. This was the black gold parallel. So it was serial numbered to five. This one was number two out of five. And I believe, I didn't have it in my notes here, but I'm pretty certain it was graded a 10 by PSA. And it was in the PWCC weekly auction last week. I actually had it in my favorites because I was going to bid on it. And actually did start bidding on it when it was for a lot less. <laughs> and then it got really expensive. And I was like, oh, man, I'd, I would have loved to have paid this price for it, to be honest with you. Um, the card sold for a record-setting $10,800. So not only a record for any Sabrina card, but a record for any WNBA card, $10,800. And i got to be honest with you, I think, I hope, for whoever bought that card, that in the long haul, I think that could be... A good per, a good buy. I think yeah. that could end up being a cheap price because if Sabrina can, you know, end up being what you know a lot of people think she could be, then you know who knows. I I could see that card selling for a lot more than that a few years down the road. So yeah, like I said, if I if I you know if I had the uh, the funds to to put that kind of money out, I, I probably would have you know tried to go for that particular card because I was bidding on it for a while and then it it just got beyond what I was willing and able to do at this point in time but congrats to whoever did get that card i think you actually not only got a great card for your collection but i think hopefully that's going to be a good financial investment for that person as well and here's i'll give you a comparison as why i think that because there, there were some talk in social media like oh that's crazy that's crazy but here's let me give you a couple comparisons so that same card i'll go to zion williamson he's his 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 rookie was in the 2019 panini prism and he his they have a black gold parallel, serial number to five. There was a PSA nine that just sold a week ago for sixty thousand dollars. As a comparison, 
so six times more. A John Morant, now granted, this was at the peak of the market in March of 2022, but a similar situation because the pop counts only two. It was 2019 prism. It was the black gold parallel serial, defi- serial number to five, PSA nine, $194,400. Now, granted, peak of the market in 2022, so probably wouldn't sell for that today. But still, just to give you an idea, so that Sabrina card sold for 10800 So, you know, who knows what's going to happen with it, but I actually think that could end up being a, a decent purchase. But I was happy to see that, happy to see Serena getting some love, happy to see the WNBA getting some hobby love in that regard. And and so who knows, maybe this, you know, kicks off a, a little bit of a trend and, and some attention. I was looking at some of um, Sabrina's other cards. If I just look at like the base of that, that 2020, remember that 2020 year was the first year that Prism came out for the WNBA. So that makes that set kind of another sort of, you know, highly collectible in my opinion uh, set is that it was the inaugural or the debut, you know, year for, for that set in the WNBA. But if I look at um, Sabrina's stuff and, and look at that card in the base for that set, just in the last month alone, it's up about 39%. So um, in a PSA 10, and it doesn't, it's not hugely expensive, but it was selling for between 50 and $60. It's now the last few sales have been up in the 70 to $90 range on that card. So definitely uh, seems to be moving a little bit higher. If I look at the silver, uh, there just haven't been enough sales. Pop count on the silver is only 36 for a 10. So let me scale down to a nine. And yeah, if I scale down to a nine, it looks like there was at least one recent sale. It's only one sale. So you got to take it with a grain of salt, but it's up about 60% was that sale at around, uh, well, it was a hundred bucks. And, and prior to that, there were two sales for $60. So, you know, maybe this is going to generate a little bit of interest in some of these uh, WNBA players and their cards. And if it does, I think that'd be great. Yeah. I, I hope it does. I'd like to see that. I think that would be fantastic. Speaking of auction results, one other I did want to touch on because there was another interesting one the PWCC auction. This was in their premier auction. There were two Patrick Mahomes cards. They were the exact same card. They were the National uh, Treasures 2017, which was his rookie. Uh, they were both the true RPAs, so serial number to 99. Now, interestingly enough, one was graded, they're both graded by BGS. One was graded nine and a half on the card, 10 on the auto. The other was graded nine on the card, 10 on the auto. But the one graded for nine, that nine and a half had a higher grade, sold for 57,600. The one with the lower grade, the BGS nine, sold for 96,000, hmm. almost double. So you say, why is that? Well, when you look at the cards, the patch, and I'm showing it to Brandon here, I've posted it in our social media so people can see it. But the difference is the patch. The patch in the 9.5 is really what they call kind of a napkin patch. It's just one solid color, all red. The patch in the uh, one that's graded a 9 is a, what they'd call a three-color patch. It's got yellow, red, and white in it and kind of a more cool-looking patch. But, you know, that's kind of the only difference in the cards. I mean, it's hard without, you know, being able to put them in a magnifying glass to see any flaws in the cards. But, you know, BGS does a good job grading them. Like I said, one got a nine and a half, one got a nine. So pretty comparable, um, you know, only a half point difference there. So the condition of the cards are pretty good. So, yeah, so the only real difference was that patch. And that patch is the difference between one going for 57600 the other going for 96000 Crazy. That's interesting. Yeah. It is interesting. Now that is crazy, I think. <laughs> the Sabrina card, I didn't think was crazy. That's kind of crazy. Uh, not to say that, you know, it's not... Uh, the, the the multicolored patch definitely has more eye appeal. I mean, yeah. 
it's definitely a more aesthetically pleasing and and um but is it forty thousand dollars aesthetically well pleasing? that's the question exactly is it really worth that much more i don't know about that i'm not for me i i don't know that i would go that far with it it definitely probably would command a premium but not you know yeah thirty eight forty thousand dollar premium i don't think uh let's see let's go to the w or to the nba and I want to get your thoughts on a couple of different things before we get to the All-Star Weekend and some of the stuff that came out of that. It's reported today, and you had talked about this before. I think it's been sort of rumored, and now it sounds like maybe it's a done deal that uh, Westbrook is going to sign with the Clippers. Yeah, I think that's the best place for him. I feel like that was really the only place he would probably end up, be it too, because so, they, they need a point guard. And I feel like uh, it's an interesting point I was listening on, on Inside before the games tonight they were talking about it's like a kind of a good situation with Tyron Lue being the coach. I think a lot of people kind of underrate Tyron Lue and what he brings. And I think for Westbrook, that's a really good coach down on the sideline yeah. and a little bit more of a stable team yeah. than the Lakers for sure. So a bit of a much better situation for him. Well, and then what'd you think of All-Star Weekend? I thought it was great. Yeah. I thought it was really good. Mac um, McClung. I thought Friday, like pretty much every night, had had some good stuff come out of it. Friday night, Saturday night, obviously was great. The dunk, the dunk contest is back, finally. Uh, you know, we uh, I literally said it last time. I was, I think, I was talking about. I was watching the ones with Dwight Howard. Yep. And they were saying like similar things with the dunk contests leading up to Dwight Howard. And I was saying we just need like one person to kind of come along and just kind of blow everybody's minds again. Yep. And that's exactly what happened. So. That was a fantastic dunk contest. I think all around, honestly, there was just it was much better creativity. Like every dunk, every dunker was much better. I think. Well, and you um, you said that he and then obviously Mac he was the one was that was like out. the YouTube sensation yeah. you were talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, and I had never seen like any of that before, so this was my first time seeing him dunk, and that was for such a little dude too. And yeah, we saw some, we saw we, we saw some stuff. Is? I mean, he's he's got to be like barely six foot, man. Yeah, and like we saw some stuff that. I've never seen before. I know he talked about he pulled from like professional dunkers, which I think NBA players in the dunk contest should do more often. I don't know how often they do that because generally professional dunkers do cooler stuff than NBA players just because that's all they do. Okay. Is just sit around and I don't even come know up with professional well, just like dunker. that's like literally all they do is they just come up with really cool dunks. Like the coolest dunks that they can do. And so there's a lot of like more famous dunkers that aren't like NBA level players. Yep. But so he kind of pulled on that. And he said he still had like three or four more that he didn't use. He really? said he'd come back next year. Well, there you go. So Dunk Contest Some, is back. Somewhere I saw, I have no idea whether this is factual or not, but I saw, um, uh, and I don't remember where I saw it, but I just saw a report that I think his, they were saying his salary this year with the 76ers is like $190,000 or something like that, and he won $100,000 for winning the Dunk Contest. So. <laughs> well, yeah, well, he literally had just signed uh, – a two-way or I think just a 10-day deal like right before that because it was interesting he played in the Rising Stars game as a G League player and then in the dunk contest the next day was in a Philadelphia 76er jersey yeah so he literally like basically just signed a 10-day nice um to play with the with Philadelphia and he's he's uh, obviously with the team now no so I, I think that's interesting and I also think um, just one quick little note that I want to mention. Uh, we were talking about how it's kind of hard to get like well-established players into the dunk contest, and so you kind of look for these younger, lesser-known players to kind of wow you. Um, and the media availability that Adam Silver had before, I think he made a good point 
where he said that the reason that a lot of the reason you saw kind of like the Michael Jordans and like Dominique Wilkins back in the day was because of the difference in like media because like obviously now we can watch games anywhere like it's very available you can watch highlights anywhere you didn't really have that back then so that was kind of a big stage like all-star weekend and the dunk contest was broadcast everywhere so that's kind of was one of the main outlets that those players could just like be seen and like make their name that's a good point i think that was an excellent point and that's kind of one of the reasons why you've seen the shift outside of just like injury risk yeah i can see that so i just wanted to mention that i thought that that was a good point that he made yeah that's true i i used to love watching dominique wilkins i actually thought he was one of the better i i know this i like jordan too but I thought Dominique was one of the better dunkers out there. It was he was unbelievable. <laughs> they introduced they introduced him because he was judging it. They introduced him as the only player to ever beat Michael Jordan dunk contest, really? which I thought is interesting. Yeah. An interesting way to introduce him, but yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right, well, and look, I mean, some Mac McClung stuff cards are just you know been going crazy all over the place, so. You know, you, everyone, you do whatever you want to do, but I, I might be a little kid cautious can, kid jumping can, into my I mean, yeah, stuff. Kid can play, but he's unproven. I, yeah. yeah, like he, he yeah. can play, but he's you know he's unproven. Yeah, he's might, still he's still a ten day player, y'all. Yeah. So I might I let it settle a down bit. a little bit, and then yeah. you know, and then pick your spots after that. But uh, all right, well, let's jump in. It's show number seventy today, so let's do jersey numbers. We do have a few. We didn't have any last time. We do have a few today. And so we've got a couple of NFL Hall of Famers. I'll get us kicked off. The first one's Art Donovan. He's a Hall of Fame defensive lineman. Joined the Baltimore Colts in 1950. Moved to the New York Yanks in 51. Then the Dallas Texans in 52. And returned to Baltimore in 53. He finished out his career there. Stayed there through the 1961 season. And his rookie card is in the 1952 Bowman set. All right, and then we have uh, Sam Huff. Another Hall of Famer, he was a linebacker. He played for 13 seasons from 56 to 69. At the age of 24, he appeared in the cover of Time Magazine, was the subject of a television special titled The Violent World of Sam Huff. His rookie card is in the 1959 top set. Yeah, and then we got Ernie, I don't know how he's pronounced his last name, so I'm going to do my best, Stoutner. And he's a Hall of Fame defensive lineman, played 14 seasons all with Pittsburgh Steelers from 1950 to 63. And the Steelers actually retired his number 70 jersey, his rookie cards in the 1951 Bowman set, although there is a 1950 what's referred tops, which is referred to as the felt back card. And there's that it's in that set as well. And then we have Rayfield Wright, Hall of Famer, offensive lineman. He also played for 13 seasons, all with the Cowboys from 67 to 79. Nicknamed Big Cat, his rookie card is in the 1972 top set. Yeah, that's a very cool set. And then that's it in the NFL. In the NBA, not really any. I mean, uh, you know, Dennis Rodman wore it for one season with Dallas. Which I think is that which was is, the season he wanted to wear. Yeah, I was going to say that's that's couldn't. the one that's very, that's related to last episode. Yeah, so that's timely. <laughs> exactly. And there wasn't really anyone in baseball. I mean, there were some people that have wore 70, but not really any for any length of time or that have been known for it. And then in hockey, there might be one. Uh, I would I would give a honorable mention to um, Braden Holtby in the uh, NHL. He was a goalie for Washington. He won the um, the Vezina Trophy and uh, also a Stanley Cup championship with Washington. And his rookie card is in the 2009-2010 sets. But there you go. That that's it for uh, the best athletes to wear jersey number 70. So, who would you pick from among that list? Uh, it's Ray, a tough Rayfield Wright. Yeah, I might go Sam Huff. You go Rayfield Wright, I'll go Sam Huff. 
I think when you uh, appear on the cover of Time Magazine and have a television special called The Violent World of Sam Huff is. <laughs> yeah. So I'll go Sam Huff. And before we go on to the halftime report, though, I did want to circle back because I forgot to ask you about the All-Star game in general because oh. I thought, you know, look, I will say there, there comes a point. I mean, I didn't watch the entire game. Because I watched some of it, and then I was like, I just can't watch this. Nobody's playing any defense at all. And I get it on the one hand, but on the other hand, I feel like this is silly. Like, why go through these motions? No one even's defending anybody. I mean, what were your thoughts on it? I mean, it's it was definitely worse this year. Look, I think that, I mean, there were, fu- there were fun parts of it. I think there's definitely something there of just letting the players just, like, try random stuff. Cause like, sure. I mean, there's yeah, like some little, subtle, yeah, funny moments, but fun. like, but like a lot of the like more subtle, like funny moments, you're only really going to find entertaining if you're like watching the NBA all the time and you like really know who the players are. Like yeah. what I found, like for some of those moments, I was like, a lot of people wouldn't even really like see that and like think that's funny or whatever. Like, and I just think the fourth quarter, like this new format they've had has generally made the fourth quarter at least more competitive, but it was not at all this year really, Yeah. which I was surprised. Like it just didn't have the same effect. So I think this year was kind of not as good, but also I, both LeBron and Giannis weren't playing in that quarter. And I think those are the two guys that would actually be, well, LeBron was taking it a little bit seriously to start, and then he went out because he hit his pinky on the rim or something, trying to block a shot yeah. in the All-Star game, by the way. And then Giannis always takes everything way too seriously. So him being out is kind of a big loss for an All-Star game Yeah, because he just brings a whole other level of like competitiveness well, to anything. And I like that. Look, I get it. I get it's the, you know, it's All-Star game. You don't want anyone to get injured, so you want to be careful. But at the same time, but I, do, I feel you like they, see they, used to, they used to play like they an did. actual I, game. I, it wasn't was like footage. full out, but no, they used well, to play. Although there was like there was footage of Kobe going against LeBron in a in a uh, and dude, All-Star game. I'm so and, disappointed. And I'm so disappointed because it was looking like it was going to be something like that with LeBron and Tatum, and then LeBron yeah. hit his pinky on the rim. Yeah. Because that's what it was shaping up in, like, the first quarter is, like, Tatum was going at LeBron, doing the same thing that he was doing. Yeah. Um, and they were, like, they were talking to each other, and I was like, okay, like, this is going to be the story of this game. And then it wasn't, and it was just everybody shooting half-court shots and Jason Tatum making a bunch of threes and breaking the record. But, yeah. like, who cares because it wasn't even competitive. Right, right. So, like... When everyone's just standing around watching the guy go to the lane... And it was, and like, the last, like, three minutes was just, like, a half-court shootout, basically. Yeah. It was stupid. See, and <laughs> that's the thing. Like, I, get, I, I don't just feel like, I feel like this year was This year was a little bit worse than it's been. I feel like the past years of this format has been better. Yeah. This year was just a little... Nah. I'm the kind of person, and maybe I'm um, maybe I'm in the minority with this, but I'm the kind of person that I like a little in the All Star game. I would like a little bit of competitiveness and a little oh, bit of, like trash too. talk. But, but that was but the like, point of the like changing, the, changing of the format. Like that was the know, point of the format change. Yeah, and it has worked until this year. I think it just for some reason this year it just didn't really work. Yeah. But it has worked in the previous years. Because I do, you know, you do go back and look, maybe it's certain players, right? I mean, Kobe competitive and Jordan competitive. But I can I can remember some of those All-Star games where Kobe and Jordan were, you know, smack-talking each other. And obviously Kobe had that one where he was playing all out against LeBron. Well, it, it's, like the changing, it's like the and, changing of the guard thing. And right. that's why I was saying with, like, LeBron and Tatum, that's really what I was looking yeah. for. And it's yeah. what it was turning. So it was kind of a disappointment to see that, that it wasn't going to continue. But, you know. Yeah. 
but I get that they're not going to go all out all the time. But I and you know you're going to have a little bit like what you talked about, kind of messing around, having some fun. I think there's I think that's but like fun. but I like there's a place for that. that. Like usually you see that in the first quarter with this format, and then it slowly picks up intensity as right. it goes. In the fourth quarter, they actually play exactly because they're playing to win. Try they're to playing win for charity. Right. Right. Um, they're playing for three hundred thousand dollars in that fourth quarter to win, like for the the yep. the win. In that format, it ends on a made basket. And so, like, that's what it's been is, like, the first quarter is just stupid. They're just messing around, and it gradually ramps up in competitive. This this, this year, it just didn't – it just – there was no ramp up. It was just basically the first quarter, yeah. basically the whole time. It was a little bit of a ramp up, but not really. Like, yeah. it was just kind of yeah. – Yeah. Well, all right. Well, let's – because I don't want to go too long here, so let's go ahead and move on to the halftime report. Okay. We'll get started with uh, Collectible received another buyout offer. This one was for their 1996 Sports Illustrated for Kids Tiger Woods card. This was graded PSA a uh, 10, I should say, by PSA. The offer was for $35,000, which is up from the IPO price. IPO just stands for Initial Public Offering of that card. The IPO price was 23,500. The price it was trading at in the secondary market prior to the offer coming in was $28,286. So this was a nice, $35,000 was a nice premium to both of those. The vote's not yet in. Um, It's still in the 48-hour voting period by shareholders, so we'll see what happens. And full disclosure, I do own shares of this one, and so I did vote. And I'll go ahead and disclose, I actually did vote to accept that price and sell this particular card. So we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll maybe report on that next week. And let's touch on some card releases coming up. Tops has released their 2022 Bowman University Chrome Football product. Hobby boxes sell for $150 a box. They contain 24 packs with four cards per pack. Each box should have two autographs in it. Remember, these are college uniform cards, so they tend to not have as much value as pro uniform cards. However, and I think they did this, what, a year or two ago when they started this, and these now for football tops, meaning, and they do contain that first Bowman designation. So these will be the first Bowman cards for these football players, similar to what you see in baseball. Anyway, the checklist on this one includes players like Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, Stetson Bennett, Bo Nix, and others. There's about 100 different players on the base checklist for that one. All right, and then Topps also has a debut product coming out, uh, the 2022 Topps Chrome Sonic Baseball Lite. It's an exclusive version of the flagship Chrome product. The checklist pulls from the main Chrome product. There's some interesting inserts as well as some dual and triple autograph cards. Each box will contain 16 packs and four cards per pack. Boxes look to be pre-selling for around $80. Yeah, and then Panini has another collegiate uh, product coming out. Their 2022 Flawless Collegiate Basketball is out this week. It's going to be priced at $2,250 per box, although that is in Dutch auction format. So remember, every three minutes, that'll come down until it sells out. Each box contains one pack. There are 10 cards per pack. You can expect six autograph cards, two memorabilia cards, and two other cards per box. And this is their flawless product, so it's going to be a popular one. But again, remember, it's collegiate, so it won't have quite the same value as the as the pro uniform flawless product has. All right, and then Upper Deck is supposed to have their 2020 to 21 The Cup hockey product coming out. Each box will contain one pack and six cards per pack, and they're priced at around $1,250 per box. You can expect to receive one RPA and another autograph card per box. Some key rookies in this product include. Hey, can you do these? Uh, yeah. Kirill. Kirill. Kaprizov. Kirill Kaprizov. Lafreniere. 
and uh, Ilya Sorokin. Alexi. Yeah, Alexi Lafreniere, 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 either however you want to say that. And then Ilya Sorokin. Yeah. Yeah, the, he's the goalie. Uh, in New York, has been having an outstanding season. I think but, the worst part is uh, all these names I mispronounced include and crude. <laughs> Getting ahead of myself, trying to read Kirill. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the um, and this one is interesting because this is the 2020-21. So just keep that in mind. So these, these, aren't, these players are not rookies this year. Um, they were rookies in that year when that came out, which was what? Two years, what one year ago? No, because we're we had the 21 22, we're now in the 22 23 season, so yeah, so this was two years ago. So, upper deck a little behind in getting the cup product released. But the cup member, that's a I would love to get one of these, um, one of these boxes because the cup is a really nice product that I kind of equate it similar to maybe National Treasures for Panini. A lot of really nice rookie patch autographs in there, all serial numbered. And so it's a it's a popular one in the hockey space. Let's do some record sales from Card Ladder. The first one out of the shoot will be a Nolan Ryan card. Nolan Ryan stuff always sells well. This is the 1981 Topps card. It was graded 10 by PSA and sold for a record $6,250 via eBay. And then you have a 1951 Bowman Mickey Mantle PSA 7, which sold for $144,000 on PWCC. Yeah, a lot of records on that PWCC auction, and, and like Nolan Ryan, Mickey Mantle stuff always sells well. And then a 2020 National Treasures, another Jalen Hurts National Treasures, 2 RPA to 99. This one was graded by PSA. It was a 9 on the card, 10 on the auto, and it sold for $12,000 via PWCC. I think, remember last time, I think we had a BGS 910 that sold for, I think, 17000 So kind of interesting that the BGS outsold the PSA. All right, and then a 2018 Panini Kaboom Kobe Bryant Gold, number 10, PSA 10, sold for 72000 on PWCC. Yeah, and remember last time we had that Panini Kaboom Kobe Bryant, um, that was just the base Kaboom card that set a record. This time it was the gold that was serial number 10, like you said. There was a 2019 Panini Donruss Optic. This was Ja Morant. It's the White Sparkle, which is a popular uh, parallel. And in a PSA 10, that sold for $3,350. And then a 2003 Topps Chrome LeBron James Refractor BGS 10 Black Label, which sold for $198,000 on PWCC. Yeah, that was an impressive sale. And obviously, you know, anyone that said his stuff's not uh, going up because of him setting the record, well, that might suggest otherwise. Although it was the Black Label. Remember, the Black Label is, it got 10s on all subgrades. And those are, I don't know what the pop count on, on that is, but I'm guessing it's only, you know, one or two cards. Those tend to be very difficult to get. So, all right, that is it for the halftime report, and that is all we've got for our normal show segments today. We are now going to go ahead and jump in to the interview with Jerry Helper, and then we will come back after that and wrap up the show. Okay, we are joined today by Jerry Helper. Jerry's a retired executive with the Nashville Predators, actually with quite a few different hockey organizations, which we'll maybe get into a little bit, but this is part two of our two-part interview with with Jerry. Part one was a long time ago, Jerry. And now we we talked about doing a part two and unfortunately it took a little longer than we hoped. I had actually gone back and it was April of last year that we did uh, part one of this interview. For those listening, it's episode 26 uh, in April of last year. If you haven't listened to that, I would highly encourage everyone to go check that out and give it a listen. I actually, Jerry, was going back and listening to it myself in preparation for having this follow-up call today and i have to say even though i know you know it was our podcast but it was your your interview it was fascinating listening to 
you talk about all your experiences and the career that you had in in hockey and all the stories that you had it it was really interesting and it was a lot of fun and fascinating so anyway so welcome jerry and thank you for coming back on the show well thank you both for having me back on it it doesn't seem like it was that long ago that we did the first episode so the time has gone by fast for me that's that's great i know yeah certainly has for us too we're happy to have you back yeah for those and we won't spend a lot of time but to maybe give the 15 or 20 second rundown and catch up last time we had jerry on we talked about kind of how you got started in hockey say so you were at saint bonaventure in in school and and uh, grew up in buffalo right and uh and ended up with the buffalo sabers organization and that's where you got your start and then you were with the league office for several years as what I think it was director of uh, public relations and yep. director of information. I think, do I have those titles, right? Yes. Yeah. Lit the league office for a while and then, then went and were part of the team that got the, the new at that time, Tampa Bay franchise started in, in Tampa. And then when the Nashville franchise got started, which I think the inaugural season I've got in my notes somewhere here was I think 98, 99, if I'm not mistaken. For you Nashville. are correct. Yeah. You are correct. Yeah. And so you, you then came here to get the Nashville franchise started and you'd been here ever since and what retired with that organization a year ago. So that, that's where we're going to pick up where we, I think that's where we left off from last time. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. So I guess let's just start there with the, well, and we've got other things cause you were involved with bringing the NHL draft to Nashville. We want to talk about that. You were involved with the Olympic team. We want to talk about that. A lot of different things, but let's just start with that the, I guess, you know, the inaugural season with the Preds, 98, 99, we, I think we did touch on last time, the rules for expansion teams, much different then than they are today. Preds and, and Tampa, the two organizations you helped get started had probably a much more difficult time. They didn't get to just go pick players off of other teams the way, you know, new fran like Seattle and other new franchises have done in recent years. So what was that like back then, um, coming to Nashville and getting the, the franchise started? Well, it's funny you started with the players we were able to select. And yes, it was very different. Uh, we did get to select from each team, but it was uh, much lower on the roster. Uh, in, in fact, uh, you know, I think in Tampa, teams could protect 17 or 18 players, and it was I want to say 16 or 17 when we were here in Nashville. And so, you know, we had the team. And so David Poyle and uh, he had already hired Barry Trotz to be the head coach. They were out scouting during the 97, 98 season. And knowing we were going to pick from the bottom of teams rosters, more of the guys we were likely to get, they were actually seeing in the press box because those guys weren't even playing in some cases. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a great story of when uh, Barry and assistant coach at the time, Paul Gardner, went to watch Vancouver. And Scott Walker couldn't quite crack Vancouver's lineup. And he was in the press box and he saw Barry and Paul multiple times. And he kept pitching to them how much he would like to come to Nashville, essentially because he wanted a chance to play. You know, he, yeah. you know it's great to be in the NHL, but nobody wants to be the, the extra guy you want to be in the lineup. And so he really worked Barry and Paul and said, Hey, I, I'm your guy, please pick me. Uh, and I think that happened on multiple occasions where, uh, you know, uh, there was a great story David used to tell that I think his initial mentor, Cliff Fletcher, who was uh, general manager of Atlanta when they came into the league in 72 and then 
uh, went on to Calgary where they won a Stanley Cup and so on. And when we were about to have the expansion draft and drafted our players, Cliff said, congratulations, you got some players. Uh, now the next step is how quickly can you get rid of them? Uh, which he was basically saying, you know, you draft your expansion roster in order to get a foundation, but they're not going to be the players that you're going to ultimately win with. You're going to use them to make trades. And so if you looked at our initial roster, there was very much that case where there were guys that we brought in early on that we moved uh, during the course of the first year or so for draft picks uh, to build up for down the road. And uh, David's initial philosophy, and actually it's been a long-term philosophy, was he was not going to build the Predators just to win one time. He wanted to build a team slow and steady through the draft and development so that once the team became competitive, it would be competitive for a long period of time. And you could see that from his past in Washington where they made the playoffs 14 out of his 15 seasons. And so he very much came with that. And so our first five years, we didn't make the playoffs any of those years. And it was, it it was honestly quite challenging because I think the, the fan base, many of which were new to hockey, were hoping for more wins and didn't necessarily understand the process. So uh, it was really difficult to kind of stick to the game plan. But I give David and Craig Leopold, who was the owner, and it was his money at the time, uh, they stuck with the plan. And it finally started to pay off in year six when we made the playoffs. And you can take it all the way forward. I think we've only missed this team has only missed the playoffs uh, three times since making it the first time back in the 0304 season. So I think yeah. that's a testament to David's building plan and his ability to uh, keep a team competitive over the long haul. So uh, that was an important part. What I remember is I think I had a little bit of an advantage over some others in the organization having come from Tampa Bay where one thing I think you learn with an expansion team is you can try things that you wouldn't try necessarily with existing teams because fans have certain expectations in that. Whereas with an expansion team, it's almost like you can throw your ideas up against the wall and some are going to stick and some will work. And then there are some that are just going to fall by the wayside and you forget you ever even tried them if they didn't work. Um, So that was one of the great things that we were able to try a lot of new things. And we had a, uh, a very creative marketing side to us. And I can remember having conversations about how we would approach game presentation and the marketing of the team. And, you know, the, the gentleman, Tom Ward was his name was the executive VP on business operations. He said, Hey, we don't know that we're, we don't expect to be real good for a couple of years on the ice. So we've got to make it an entertainment event in the arena so that when people come in, whether they've ever seen hockey before, never seen it, we want them to walk out, feeling like they had a good time, it was entertaining, and they'd want to come come back again. And they might not even remember whether the team won or lost in those early years. So that was an important part of it, as well as, you know, the full marketing strategy the, the year before we, we put the team on the ice. We had to try to sell tickets without having players or anything. So we kind of built a year-long program that was, I would compare it more to a political campaign in the sense that we had one event after another, all designed to be ticket selling opportunities. And we were able to tap into 
uh, the music industry. Uh, I remember uh, we had pretty creative billboards and it was a takeoff of the old Got Milk campaign where you had the milk mustache. We did a Got Tickets campaign. And again, this was Tom and his group's uh, brainchild where they went to some of the top uh, country music artists and asked them if they'd participate in it. Uh, and it was a pretty bold step because most of those country music artists, their brand is built on their appearance. And so they were, we were able to get a handful of them that were willing to allow us to use their likeness, but black out their front teeth. And the campaign was got tickets. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it was, it, it was a way to build some credibility because we still didn't have players. So you were looking for some kind of third party endorsement to indicate to the market, hey, this team's going to be fun. It's exciting. It's worth giving a try uh, and so on. So that was a lot of fun of, of the first season. Yeah, well, I, I can say, believe it or not, I actually do remember that those billboards and that campaign. I, I really do. We we moved to, to Nashville in 99 and which I guess was about the first year. Maybe it was actually because yep. it was uh, spring of 99. So let's call it second season uh, that with, with the Preds. But yeah, and, and I can attest, we you know got interested in the Preds early on and, and would go to a couple games every season. And the experience was a ton of fun. And that's, I know we talked a little bit about that last time, but everything from, you know, the broadcasters that you selected to call the game to a lot of just the things that happen, you know, in the arena during the game, you know, the different sort of musics and music that's played and I don't, just a, a lot of the different things that now have become tradition and, you know, something everyone looks forward to. But it was it was an entertaining experience regardless of, you know, and again, it was early on. Right. So I don't I think there wasn't necessarily the expectation that, you know, the team to, to win as much as maybe there is today. Right. And yep. and and so but it was yeah a ton of fun. So a lot of credit to yourself and, and others that were part of that to to make that happen. So and, wh- and Nashville was like a much smaller market then too, right? That's a good it, point. It, it really was. We right. were faced with, you know, we had a handful of what I would consider core hockey fans. And a number of them were people that had moved down uh, to the Saturn plant in Spring yeah. Hill. They had come down from Detroit. So uh, we, we in, in a fun way, referred to them as Predwing fans. Uh, <laughs> you know, and our hope was, hey, come to the games and the three times Detroit's here, you want to root for them, go, go ahead. But we hope you'll root for us the other 38 and you'll be the, and they were really the foundation of our fan base. And then it was a matter of getting additional fans through, uh, you know, individual contacts, coming to games, sampling, things of that nature, our youth hockey, our community relations, all those things kind of went into developing our, our fan base. And, and yes, it was a smaller market at the time, but ironically, when we talk about the fun things we did, there's two things that stick out to me that we still do. We score a goal. You still hear the Tim McGraw. I like yep. it. I love it. I want some more of it. Yep. That started year one, as did the fang fingers when fang the other finger. team takes a penalty. So yep. that kind of goes to what I said. You know, I can't tell you how many things we threw against the wall that have disappeared yep. and didn't last more than a half a season if that uh but there's a couple that you know have now are going on 25 years yep exactly yeah well and and even some that were specific to players like uh i think about you know Ar- arvidson and and the rv and everything else and the and some of the the movie clips that would play uh but anyway so yeah it's absolutely fantastic now let me ask you this i know this may be not necessarily the the side of the business that you were on but i'm sure you had some exposure to it 
in those early days when you're trying to get players um, was what was that like for the players? Because Nashville was a new market. Did you run into any sort of challenges with them not, you know, maybe being hesitant to come to the market or what was the player receptivity to it? Well, I think David and his hockey department were pretty careful on the type of players we were bringing in. Uh, generally, what we represented was for a lot of the players, we weren't in the market yet for the high end guys. So what we were was an opportunity, just as I mentioned for Scott yeah. Walker. You know, he was on that first team. This was going to be the first time for him to show he could play regularly in the NHL. So he bought into what we were doing. Uh, we specifically signed after the expansion draft, uh, Tom Fitzgerald to be our first team captain. And it wasn't because Tom was the greatest player in the league. It was because we knew he had been through the expansion process. He was part of the Florida Panthers when they came into the league in, uh, 93, 94. Uh, so he had some great experience from being part of an expansion team. He had progressed to a stage where, uh, he was a leader. And we really relied on players like Tom, uh, Greg Johnson, who came from Detroit, uh, Kimo Timonen, who was another guy that we picked up that was yep. kind of an afterthought, but he turned out to obviously be a, a, a core player and a star player down the road. But those guys really bought into getting an opportunity to be more than they ever were anywhere else. Yeah. And so they embraced their role they understood that their role was more than just being players, that yeah. we were going to ask them to be out in the community, whether it was doing youth hockey clinics or going to schools and visiting with the students and that, because those were other touch point opportunities for us as a franchise. So they all understood it. And, you know, I, I, we just saw Tom, oh, I guess it's about a year or so ago. And, uh, you know, I made a point of thanking him and just pointing out that, you know, it was your group that was such an important part of our foundation, because what you guys did establish that foundation that made it easier for us to do with every group of players that came thereafter. And we could always say, hey, Tom Fitzgerald and Greg Johnson and Drake Barahowski and Bob Bugner, they all did this stuff. This is important for us as a franchise. And it's an important part of us being in this community. Yeah. Well, and they all did, and y'all did a great job. And the Preds now are, I think, woven within the fabric of, of Nashville. I mean, you can't, everywhere you go, there was Preds, the whole city and, 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 and expanding beyond that are, are Preds fans now. So it's, it's a lot of fun to see. I think, I think it's an interesting situation now too, since Nashville has grown from a smaller market to maybe a bigger market that you kind of have a difference where like with a lot of like new teams, that are smaller markets you have to kind of build through the draft like you said you can't really recruit the top end players because they just don't really want to go there to a smaller market um i think nashville is interesting because it's kind of grown a little bit into a much larger market you can see that maybe that's changed a little bit i feel like that's kind of a bit of like a unique situation i don't know if you see that with a lot of other well of other markets I, yeah. I think to your point about getting the top end players it wouldn't have, even if some wanted to come in the early years, it wouldn't have necessarily made sense because mm -hmm. we didn't have the complementary players to take advantage of them being there. And mm -hmm. that's why when we talked about our building strategy of building through the draft and development and so on, uh, a lot of expansion teams over the years have said that, but usually 
they panic. It's after two or three years and either the fans are impatient, the owners become impatient, the media have become impatient, any one or two of those groups become impatient and you abandon your plan and you go out and sign a couple of free agents. And what you quickly realize is one or two free agents with an expansion team are not going to really improve your standings. Yeah. You really need to develop them over the develop your team for the long haul. Now, obviously, Vegas and Seattle are a little different because they did get a much better starting point. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we were picking like the 16th or 17th player. They were picking the 12th and 13th players off teams rosters. So they were immediately starting with a much more representative team. Uh, and then with the salary cap, they had some other uh, opportunities that again, weren't available to us. But I think, you know, we found as we grew by the time we made the playoffs that first time, and then unfortunately we had the lockout that next year that cost us the entire season. But what it did do is that's the lockout that brought about the salary cap and leveled the playing field for everyone. And I always refer to coming out of that lockout, the most significant thing for our franchise happened. And that was that Paul Correa chose to sign with us in uh, July of, I guess it would have been 05, you know, I think Paul Correa was one of these guys, ultimately a Hall of Famer, but he looked around, he liked what was going on with our team, he saw the direction we were going, that we were, you know, we were a faster team, more equipped for the style of play that was coming out of the lockout, and as we talked with many people that Paul Correa, a lot of the other players we had, we chose them, and they didn't have a choice. They they kind of had to come here because they were traded, drafted, what have you. Paul Correa could have gone anywhere, and he chose to come to Nashville. So he was really the first star to pick Nashville and say, this is a good place to play, and I want to be here. And ironically, there was a funny side note after he signed with us. You know, he was weighing multiple offers and opportunities, and his agent finally called the other teams that he was talking to to say, hey, he's chosen to go somewhere else and so on. And most of them were fine. One of them said, well, I just want to ask, where is he going? And the agent said, well, he's going to Nashville. And the other GM's reaction was, Nashville? Are you kidding me? <laughs> and I, that, that really did show where we were on the hockey landscape. And yeah. that's why Paul's signing was so transformative for our franchise. Yeah. It's interesting because you talked about, I, I'm curious, and we'll get to this a little bit later too, because I want to ask you kind of get some of your thoughts on the current team, but I do feel like in those early, and so I'm curious to get your comment as to whether this is a fair assessment of, of maybe the progression of the team through the years. When in the early days, it did feel like maybe Nashville had a, like you said, maybe a little bit of a smaller, but faster team. And then I think, as I recall, in, in some of those first playoffs uh, series, we were matched up against, I think it was like maybe St. Louis and some other teams that were maybe a little bigger, a little more physical, and we had a little harder time with the more physical teams. And then I feel like there was maybe a, a strategy to try to address that, get more physical. So then we came up, you know, maybe a more, a bigger, more physical team and, uh, and, and maybe more defensively oriented and, and that seems to have been, you know, and then that kind of put together some pretty 
you know, nice seasons that ultimately led to this, the Stanley Cup run that we had in, in 2017, I think it was. And, and again, we'll get to that in a, minute, in a little bit. And, and whereas today now it seems like there's almost this idea like, hey, maybe we're too defensive oriented and need to become a little more offensively oriented. But is that from your perspective, being with the team all those years, was that kind of a, a, a fair assessment? Was that an intentional strategy or something well, that just I, sort of happened based on the players that you were able to acquire? I think David had a long belief that you build from the goal out and that you start out hopefully with good goaltending. You need to have a good defensive core and then you build to your forwards. So, you know, our franchise has been very fortunate that, uh, you know, throughout its history, we've had really good goaltending. Uh, you know, Mike Dunham, Thomas Bocoon, uh, then even Dan Ellis and Chris Mason kind of were the bridge to Pekka. Yeah. And then Pekka carried us for 10, 11 years. And then UC Saros took over. So we, we always had the goaltending. And again, as an expansion team back in the late 90s and early 2000s, the best way to be competitive was to play tight defense, to yeah. be quite honest. There was a little bit more hooking and holding and obstruction, if you will, allowed. So if you could play good defense, you could try to eke out a two to one, three to two uh, win. Uh, so yes, by being a little more defensive. So, you know, we were very fortunate that we drafted, uh, you know, we, we got chemo team in an expansion draft. Then we got Dan Hamus as a first round pick. Then the Oh three draft that was here in the building, we got both Ryan Suter and Shea Weber. I mean, that's a pretty good core right there along with, uh, I think we got Merrick Zidlicki in a trade with the Rangers. So, you know, we did have a really strong defense and, uh, and then we were just trying to kind of figure out how to, how to find the forwards. And, but when you had that kind of goaltending and defense, you didn't have to score a lot. But I think if there's been one criticism of the franchise, it's we have not had a lot of success in develop drafting and developing our own kind of star forwards. Now, having said that, we haven't had a lot of those premium draft picks where you tend to get the, the high end guys in the top five or 10 draft picks because we had gotten to that competitive stage by 05, 06, you know, we weren't drafting that high. And so generally what we were ended up with were often defensemen or more two-way forwards that uh, could play, but they weren't going to be your, uh, your game breakers, if you will. Yeah. Well, and it's a good segue. I was going to get to this a little bit later, but I feel like we should t get on, we can get to it now because that's a perfect segue into it. And then we can come back to, uh, your experience with the Olympics and so forth, but because this is a topic with the current team right now, right? Is, is uh, there's a, sort of a lot of discussion around, you know, whether some you know kind of wholesale changes should be made with the team, and in a way, it's a it's kind of an interesting conversation, and and in a way, it's kind of a good thing if you think about it from the standpoint of the franchise has become so successful. Right. And, and the fan base has become so accustomed to that success that now when we go a couple of, you know, a year or two without making the playoffs, everyone's like, hey, wait, what's going on? We need to, like, make some changes. What, you know, <laughs> so but and, and that's one of the things you, you mentioned it right back then. The league maybe had a, a little different approach. And I feel like and I don't you know, don't know all the specific details as far as rule changes and things like that. But what I do know is when you look at the stats. There's no question that scoring in the league is up and the trend has been higher for several years now. In fact, I think it's probably been, you know, 15 or 20 years of a trend 
towards you know higher average scoring per game and and so you have teams like like last year with Colorado that's more you know faster and 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 kind of more you know what do you want to say technical or you know skill set and 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 more offensively oriented um and you look at the preds here's an I was looking at some stats and here's an interesting one for the preds which is game this is from this season games that the preds score four or more goals uh, they are, let me find them here. The Preds are 16 and two when they score four or more goals. And f- so that's a win percentage of, let's call it eight, eight, nine. Now, some, some, some might say, and they rightly so, well, the whole league has, you know, a higher win percentage when you score four or more goals. And that is true. However, the Preds rank in the top 12 of the league on, on that metric. Um, here's the other interesting thing though. When the Preds don't score four, when they score three or less, they actually have, they also rank in the top 12 as far as win percentage. That win percentage is lower. It's it's three, three, three um, for for the Preds. And and the but the league average as a whole is 303. And and when teams score four or more, the league average is 858. So the so the Preds are about three to four four points higher on a win percentage in both categories, and they're in the top 12 of the league in both categories. And then you say, well, wait a second, how's that possible? Because they don't rank in the top 12 overall. They're, you know, they're whatever their position is. It's like 20th or somewhere, you know, down 18 or 20th or something like that. Well, the reason for that is because the Preds have one of the fewest number of games that they score for more. So most yeah. of their games, even though they have a higher win, a higher win percentage than the league, the win percentage as a whole is lower right? When you score three or less and they have a lot more of those games than they do with the games where they score four or more. So it's, it's kind of interesting. And look, Brandon, I've talked about this before. I know it's not as easy as just saying, okay, let's go get some offensive guys and we'll score more. You know, it's, it's not that simple, but I'm curious. I don't know how much you keep up with it. I'm curious just to get your thoughts on that and maybe, you know, some of the changes that have happened in the game and kind of how you, what do you think the Preds need to do and do they need to have a change in philosophy from that perspective? Well, I do think there is no question the game has changed, and it really can tr- be traced back to that lockout of 0405. Coming out of that, the rule changes were made where you know there was no center line for offsides, uh, and the whole focus was on getting more speed and skill into the game. And you can now see over that almost 20-year period, you know, the young players that are being drafted now are ju- they can just fly. Yeah. And their skill set is so much better than it was. I mean, and it's, this is no knock on the players of 20, 25 years ago, yeah. but they could, they could stay in the league by being savvy and smart and by using their stick to their advantage to obstruct and hold up the other guy. Now you can't do that. So uh, it is all about the speed and skill. And I think, you know, again, it's tough to get the high-end guys when you're not selecting as early. So what the Predators have done over the last several years, they made some big deals and brought in high-end guys. But I, unfortunately, some of them have not played up to the level of their salary. And in this day and age, every player needs to play up to his, his salary. And Frankly, you need a couple of players on their entry-level deals to almost overperform, yeah. uh, where they 
you know, they, they are really blossoming as players, but they're still on their entry level deals. So you're kind of getting a bargain there. You're going to have to pay them down the road, but you, that's really how you develop a good team, you know, on an annual basis. So, you know, again, I, I think philosophically, the Predators have always focused on two-way play, strong two-way play, so on and so forth. And, you know, as a result, have not had a lot of luck with high-end forwards out of the draft. Um, You know, one, unfortunately, was one who was traded away a couple of years ago, Kevin Fiala. Uh, But that was a trade made at a time when the, the team thought they were positioned to kind of go further in the playoffs and wanted a more experienced guy in Mikhail Granlund, whereas Kevin was still a young developing player. And it was one of those age-old deals of today for tomorrow. And, you know, today you'd, you'd probably like to have Kevin Fiala back, but you, you, you took that gamble uh, yeah. with Granlund. And that, that's kind of the, the chicken and the egg as to which is the right way to go. Right. And yeah. And, and look, I, I know I'd, I'd, it's got to be tough and you win some and you lose some on those. And so, yeah, I can, I can only imagine. So I'm not, I don't want to put any of us in a position to second guess any of that, but I'd, I was just curious to get your thoughts on that. Cause yeah, it is, it's striking. And, but it, it is, you know, it's funny. Cause when you look at that, you say, well, gosh, the Preds actually have in a lot of ways, they're a better team than maybe what the record shows. It's just, how can you maybe manufacture some more goals? And I do hate, cause you said, you said it. I mean, they've always had, maybe that's because of that philosophy of goalie out, and we've always had fantastic goalies, you know, and and the defense has been good. And they've been fun teams. I think about all those teams and they've been fun teams to watch. So I'd, I kind of hate to see us lose that. But it, so it's like, how do you keep that and and try to maybe juice up this, the offensive side of the team a little bit more so that you can? Because if the Preds could score a little bit more on average, I mean, when you look at these stats, just based on what they show, I mean, Again, if you were to be able to keep the, the defense and the, and the goalie and all that, that that you have, man, they would be a force to be reckoned. Not that they're not right, but they'd be a force to be reckoned with. So, but and it's also interesting though that I know there is some criticism within the marketplace of where the team is, where they're going, so on and so forth. I actually consider that kind of dialogue a positive. Yeah, as to yeah, showing sure. how far the franchise has come. Mm-hmm. And I used to have this conversation with Barry Trotz in the early years. And I would say, Barry, you, you're not going to like what I say, but I am waiting for the day when talk radio and the newspapers are questioning who you've got on the power play and who your line <laughs> combinations are, as opposed to what Nash did as a skip right. during the game. <laughs> exactly. said, when they start questioning and, you know, asking about what you're doing as a coach and what the players are doing, that is a sign that we've really made that emotional connection to where they are really involved in the team. And they, you know, they're living and dying with every win and loss. And that's, you know, in in sports, that's what you're really trying to build. You're trying to build into something that uh, people feel like they really need the team to do well and they want the team to do well. And they are part of the team, if you will. Yeah. Uh, so that that to me, the the conversations going on now are actually, you know, positive in one regard. Agreed. I, not not always comfortable for people on the receiving end. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would say that. I mean, yeah, pressure is a good thing. There's a, like very few teams and like cities that can say that they are under that pressure every year. Yeah. So to be under that pressure is 
you puts you in the same conversation as that, which is a good thing for any franchise. And it is, it I is. Mean, if you think about it, right. The word, like, like you well, said, I mean, listen, like no ways, one, I mean, like if, if, if everyone was complacent and or indifferent about it, that's not, you don't want that. Exactly. Right. Apathy, like that apathy is the worst thing a sports franchise can deal with. Yeah. Because if they're apathetic, you're going to have a tough time getting them back at any point. Yep. If they are emotionally invested uh, and that's where I see this as a difference in a relatively still new market versus the more established markets in the Northeast, if you will, where yeah. they've dealt with pro sports ups and downs forever. And, you know, there are no greater critics than the New York Ranger fans or the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, yet they're there every night. The, the fans are there. And even when they're not happy, they're there and yeah. because they want better. Uh, and that's yep. actually a good thing. You yep. know, the worst thing is to, to get into a marketplace where you go out and your state, your arena or your stadium's only half full. You got to go out then and find a way to get the other half back in the building. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's switch to some of the, cause like I said, the Preds have had after, like you said, after they made the first playoffs in whatever that 0304, 05, that season was 0304, I guess. Right. Oh, um, three, oh, four. Yeah. Yeah. Then there was a string there and they kind of progressively got better and better and better. And then there was that four or five year period from probably 2012 to 2017, where it was, I, I, you know, and I don't have all the data in front of me, so I might be, might, I might be off here by a season or two, but it was, you know, where, okay, did pretty well and got a little deeper into the playoffs, a little deeper into the playoffs until finally that 2017 season kind of broke through and made it to the Stanley cup finals what was that season like for you and for the organization? I mean, and kind of all of it, right? I mean, I want to hear about the playoff run and kind of everything that went on there, but also going into that season, was there a sense that that was going to be the year? Cause you guys had been building that team. And like I said, been progressively having more and more success. And did you kind of have a feeling like that could be the year that you would make that run? I think we felt like we were on the right track would be the best way. And I, I would say again, that was year three of Peter Laviolette's time here. Yep. And if you remember his first season, we got off to a great start. And then, you know, we made the playoffs, but we lost to Chicago in a good six game series. Uh, and then the next year we were a little bit better and we had two really grueling seven game series. Uh, we won game seven in Anaheim and then we stayed out there, ironically, because we then had to play San Jose in the next round and literally went from a game seven one night to two nights later playing game one of a next series. Mm -hmm. And we were able to extend that to game seven. Uh, ironically, I think it was game four was the infamous Mike Fisher triple overtime uh, goal that came at like one fifteen in the morning, one o'clock <laughs> in the morning. I forget what it was, but uh, everybody says they were there now. Uh, yeah, but exactly. I think I think that gave us a sense that we're really moving in the right direction because we had gone two seven game series. Uh, then in that summer, it was the uh, huge trade where we acquired PK Subban mm -hmm. and he brought just a different energy to the franchise, colorful on the ice, colorful off the ice. And so I think, you know, Pekka was playing at his best. We, we had a core, the defensive core was terrific with yep. Yossi, Ekholm, Subban, Ryan Ellis, uh, yep. as good a top four as any team had. And we were scoring just enough. 
you know, with Mike Fisher, Ryan Johansson up front, Arvidsson, Forsberg, and so on. So we had a good feeling, but even that, we were still the last team in the playoffs. Uh, yeah, despite right. all that, that, that third season under Peter. Uh, but we, we were matched up against Chicago. And I think while most outside thought Chicago was the favorite because they were the number one seed and we were number eight, we had a real confidence that we could beat them. And I think it stemmed from we had played them so often within the division. We had had the good series two years earlier. And so I don't think anyone within the Predators were surprised that we were able to sweep them. And it was kind of the changing of the guard, but it gave us a lot of momentum going on. Then uh, played St. Louis. Uh, and that was, you know, a team that we matched up pretty well against. So we were able to get the first game in St. Louis and, you know, in a seven game series, if you can win that first game on the road, it really does crank up the pressure on the other team. They did win the second game, but we came home and then and won three and four. So now kind of had the ball in our court and we were able to win in six. And again, we were getting contributions like Vern Fiddler scored the, the winning goal in game one. Uh, Cody McLeod scored the winner in one of the games. You know, guys that were not really in the lineup to be your goal, your goal scorers were chipping in at really the opportune times. Then we go play Anaheim and that was just a a physical, tough, tough series, you know, and we, if I recall, uh, I'm trying to remember the order. I think it was one, one, and then two, two. And unfortunately in game four, I think we lost both Mike Fisher and that's when Johan Ryan Johansson suffered a really bad leg injury, kind of a fluky type thing. So we're going out to Anaheim to play game five. So you're thinking they've regained all the momentum and this and that. And it was one of the uh, better games you could hope for. Pekka was outstanding. Pontus Aberg, another guy that, you know, didn't score very often for us, but he scored, I think it was two to two late in the third period. He scored a, a dramatic goal and gave us the win. Uh, the, the irony is when you're in the playoffs, especially on game days, you do a pregame media availability and you have to take two or three players. And we, we tried to rotate it around and we had taken, I forget who the other two were, but we said, well, let's take Pontus Aberg, you know, and he's got to be the third guy. Well, nobody asked him a single question because nobody even knew who he was to speak of. <laughs> yeah. They all wanted to talk to him post game though. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So we, we win game five and it was, uh, you know, a really dramatic win come home. And then in game six, again, we're, it's back and forth, but Colton Sissons has the, the night of his life. He scores three goals and, uh, you know, we win, uh, win, win to go, go to the Stanley cup finals. And now we're matched up against Pittsburgh. And again, we were clearly the underdogs cause we were going in without Johansson. Mike Fisher was up in the air though. He did, yep. was able to return to play, but meanwhile, you're going up against Pittsburgh with Crosby and Malkin as their top two centers. So yep. Yep. kind of a, unfair uh, matchup, but, uh, but we played them tough and took them to six games. And uh, even that sixth game, it was nothing, nothing for the longest time. We thought we scored a goal that was yep. 
uh, wiped out and uh, what I, I was going to say, I can say it if you can't, because I say if it wasn't for the refs, maybe it was a different outcome. <laughs> well, and you know what? And and this is where my league background comes into play. I know the refs are trying to do the best job they can. Yeah. And he he just blew the whistle before he should have. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was a it was a, a mistake that unfortunately once you make it, you can't turn it back. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we had to live with it and they scored uh, late. So they won one in six games, but it was just an unbelievable experience to, to go through. I, I can remember when we'd lose in the first round in the early years and I'd go into our locker room and, you know, we might've lost to Detroit in six games and you'd look at our players. And obviously we were a young team at the time, smaller guys for the most part. And they were so beat up after six games. I could remember thinking, I don't know even if we'd have won the series, if we'd have been able to physically play the next one because our guys were so banged up. Yeah. You realize when you go through it, what a grueling test it is. And, uh, you know, again, we had so many guys step up. I, I mentioned a few of them. I didn't even get to mention uh, Freddie Goudreau, uh, a guy who came out of nowhere and, uh, you know, truly came out of nowhere in that, when he was up with us during the finals, you know, we, we have the locker room and everybody's got their own stall, but you usually have a couple extra players. So he didn't even have a stall. He, he was on a folding chair. He was getting dressed and ready on a folding chair in the middle of the room. Nice. <laughs> but Freddie did not care. He was thrilled to be in the Stanley cup finals and oh, just yeah. a, a great guy. I'm thrilled to have seen the success he's had, uh, since that time but uh but it was a, a fantastic experience that's really cool well, that's a lot of fun to go back and yeah relive that a little bit i i remember and you know as i recall and, and again maybe i have this wrong because my memory doesn't serve me as well as i as i age but um as i recall the that run that year i mean the whole town right when when you when the preds were away i think you all would broadcast the games on the big screen outside the arena and and a lot of the of course broadway now in nashville's just become crazy and so a lot of the you know bars and restaurants would have the game and the entire downtown it was just a, there must have been hundreds of thousands of people it was just a sea of people down there watching the preds games during that you, run it was a lot you know, of during during the run there there were multiple times when we would stand around and wish we could be in multiple places at the same time because yeah. you wanted to be by the team but you wanted to see what was going on in the concourse or what was going on out in the streets. Cause as you said, it was unbelievable. And I have always been a believer. There's only one first time for so many things. And that was such a special time because it was the first time to go that far. And that's the unique thing about the Stanley cup playoffs is it really does build over a two month period. Yeah. You know, versus some, you know, the World Series is over and done with in three weeks yeah. between the playoffs and the World Series. The Stanley Cup playoffs, it goes and it just builds and builds and the, and the whole community is a part of it and embraces it. So uh, it, it was wild. Like I said, I didn't get out on the street very often, but I saw a lot of video uh, and heard <laughs> yeah. the stories. And then, you know, when we would be on the road for a road game, you'd hear about the viewing parties in the in the uh the park uh by the hilton uh so it, it it's one of those great again it goes beyond sports as to what a unifier it can be for a community because 
you know, they were having viewing parties in Springfield and other places within the marketplace, even beyond downtown Nashville. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, it's just a, the first time is always special. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that one, yeah, it, no question. And that I can remember that one very well. It was a, a ton of fun. And and I'm hoping, I'm looking forward to because I I, am, I have full confidence and belief that the Preds are, will be back in the cup at some in the finals at some point. So, so and I'm looking forward to that. And hopefully they'll have an opportunity to 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 win a championship and you know bring a cup home to Nashville. But let me so let me ask you, what is a day in the life, or maybe it's more a week in the life? Uh, with the team like during the season. And I say that maybe it's more a week than a day because I'm sure game days are different than non-game days and obviously home versus, you know, away makes a difference. And so maybe let's start with a non-game day because I think about, okay, what are the, what's the typical thing? Do the players get up in the morning and come into the, you know, practice facility, the arena, is our film study and maybe lifting some weights and, you know, rest and whatever, like what does that sort of typical day and process look like? Well, you, you hit the nail on the head that there's really two days. There's game day and non-game day. Uh, and yes, it, either one usually begins where they come in, you know, 8.30, 9 o'clock. Usually there's uh, most teams now have a nutritionist and someone who will uh, be preparing a breakfast for the guys so that, you know, nutrition is an important part of being a pro athlete to make yep. sure that they're getting the right foods. And as, as you can imagine... You know, if you left a 20 to 23 year old single guy on his own, he might not be eating the best uh, food yeah. that do you would they, like. Do they go so, through the McDonald's drive through to get breakfast on the uh, way to the? <laughs> yeah, they might do that if they, if given their druthers. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, they have a meal, they have a breakfast available to them uh, with, with the right foods, but then they, uh, they have their own routine, uh, workout, preparing sticks, so on and so forth. Uh, there will be a certain amount of video work. Some of it's individual. You know, we have a pretty good video crew. There's a couple of guys down there and they will do individual videos for guys uh, that, that want to see their own play uh, or things they need to work on. And then, uh, you know, the way the coaching staff will divvy it up is usually one of the assistant coaches will be responsible for the power play. One will be responsible for the penalty kill and then one maybe for systems. And they'll, they'll each have video to support what they want to talk about on that particular day. Uh, the head coach generally will focus on what we're going to do during practice and, and get that ready. They'll go through, in, in this day and age, they're not spending as much time on the ice. You know, they spend their off season on the ice, working out, getting ready, building up. Because when they come to camp, that's the best shape they're probably going to be in all season. Yeah. because of all the bumps and bruises they're going to incur and the wear and tear that the season takes on them. So, you know, often practices won't be more than an hour on a non-game day. Uh, but then they'll come off the ice. They'll go back to working out. By then, there's probably a lunch available to, for them as well, a little bit of individual work and so on. And, you know, we have a lounge where they can watch TV. They can play ping pong. They can do things. So that you want to create an environment where the guys want to be there a little longer to build that camaraderie and, and teamwork. Uh, and then they, they leave. They're, they can be out of the building often by 2, 2.30. You hope they're going home and resting because it is such a grind of a season. And, and a game day is a little bit more regimented in that they come in, they'll do some prep ahead of time, some workout, 
they'll only be on the ice for probably 20 minutes, 20 to 25 minutes. It's really just to break a sweat, get loose, and uh, and then get their equipment prepared for that night. Uh, they will then, there'll be a brief meeting at about, uh, if it's a home game, they'll skate at about 10.15 to 10.45. They'll have a team meeting at about 11.30. And it's really only about 10, 15 minutes just talking about tonight's game, the opponent, what they need to focus on, so on and so forth. Guys will then leave to go uh, have their pregame meal. Most guys want to go home and uh, relax, whether that means actually taking a pregame nap or just kind of laying on the couch, relaxing. Uh, and then they'll be back at the arena by... 4.30-ish for a 7 o'clock game, and then they start the whole routine all over again about preparing, uh, working out. Soccer is a big deal. They play, uh, there are group soccer games that are often as intense or more intense than what happens on the ice sometimes. Uh, they always have to find an area in the building, where, in whatever building they're in, where they can play that and so on. But one of the old jokes was about uh, if you ever – paid attention to a player, how many times they change their clothes on a given day. Because they get out of bed at home, put their, you know, jeans and what have you on to go to the rink, take those off, put their hockey gear on, go out and skate for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, take a shower, put their jeans back on, go home, take them off to go to bed and so on, get up, put a dress outfit on to what to get to the arena, yeah. get to the arena, take your suit off and hang it up and then put your hockey gear back on, get ready, play the game. And then you got to shower again and put the dress clothes on again and go home. So how many different changes they go through during the course of a game day is pretty yeah. remarkable. Yeah. So game day is really just change clothes day. <laughs> it, it does seem to be that. Yes. Yeah. That's funny. Well, that's interesting to, to, to hear. Cause yeah, it's just something I think that a lot of people don't necessarily get to experience or think about. And I'm curious too, because hockey probably a lot similar to or somewhat similar to baseball and maybe basketball different from football in the sense that there's not a lot of time between games, right? Like, so in football, you have the whole week. And so a lot of, I imagine anyway, right. A lot of game planning that goes in for what, you know, you're going to do for that next team in hockey. I'm thinking that maybe that doesn't happen as much, right? It's maybe more about what you're just trying to do as a team and you're not necessarily, I mean, maybe you are to some degree. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but I feel like maybe it's more about what you're trying to accomplish versus necessarily changing things up game to game based on the opponent. Yeah, that's Yeah, that's I, I think that, oh, go ahead. Brent. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, um, it's interesting that you say that because that's been something that's going to be coming up uh, in the NBA a lot that I've seen is that like part of the reason they're talking about how like defense is kind of no one knows how to defend right now. And one of the reasons that at least Isaiah Thomas thinks is that nobody like comes up with like defensive schemes during the regular season as much. And maybe that is because of like the, the lack of downtime in games. So yeah. it's just more of like a general defense. Um, just wanted to piggyback off that to see if that's also true in hockey as well. Yeah. Yeah. You typically would focus on your own players and scheme first and foremost. However, your video people will certainly pre-scout your opponent for the next game and provide it to the coaches so that they get a sense of, you know, like as an example, if the team has a game tonight and then tomorrow night, when they get on the plane or get in the locker room after the game, they're now turning their focus to the next game with video breakdowns of the other team. Cause you do want to focus on, Hey, what's the other team going to try to do on their power play? 
Yeah. What is their strategy on their penalty kill? So what do we do that we can kind of take advantage of or play to? Uh, and it becomes, you know, that much more focused when you get into a playoff series where you know you're going to play the same team six or seven games. You zero in on individual players, tendencies, so on and so forth. So absolutely, most of the regular season, it's probably 75% on your team and your thing, the other 25% is devoted to what the other team's doing. And then in the playoffs, it's more of a 50-50. That, I was going to mention that too, because you're exactly right. And in a way, that's kind of what makes the playoffs even more exciting, I think, in, in hockey. And, and again, maybe this could be said with baseball and basketball. Um, I don't know if I should say more. I mean, all the playoffs are exciting in all sports. But just like you said, there's a lot more opportunity, I think, for that game planning and strategy to come into play in the playoffs in hockey, because like you said, now you're facing that same yep. team over a five or seven game series. And so, it, yeah, it just, and, and you see that too, right? You'll see like, okay, if I feel like during the regular season, like let's say goalies, right? Scouting goalies during yep. the regular season, you don't hear as much about maybe shots that the goalies have difficult times with, you know, are difficulty with stopping, right? Like, well, if you hit that, high right shoulder or, you know, the glove side on the, you know, or whatever, like there's different spots and you get to the playoffs. I feel like you hear a lot more about that and you see the teams trying to, you know, pinpoint those shots to specific areas more than they do necessarily in the regular season. Well, and, and the coaches, especially in the playoffs, but even a little bit in the regular season, there will be pieces of paper taped on the wall with individual notes about, your team, the other team, individual players on the other team, you know, their tendencies, what you need to be prepared for. And the idea is that the players will walk by these wherever they're posted in the locker room and they'll read them, um, you know, and they can read them whether they're on their way to their workout, on their way to the lounge, wherever they are. So teams are always preparing for the next game with uh with as much information and and again you you want to be a little careful because you are playing 82 games you don't want to overload the players with too much you yeah. you want them to be because hockey is so much of an instinctive game you don't want to overload them uh, yeah. but you want to give them enough so that there are additional tools available to them to know what to be prepared for yeah that's very interesting all right, we've kept you quite a bit, but I do, if you have a little more time, I, I want to touch on your experience with the uh, the USA hockey team because I had my notes here that you were active with that team, I think served as a communications liaison for them in that silver medal winning uh, year into the 2020, or excuse me, 2010 Olympics, I should say, in Vancouver, Canada. And I can't remember, I, I, I don't think we talked about that last time. Maybe we didn't, I don't recall it, but what was that experience like for you and how did you get involved with that? Well, when NHL players participate in the Olympics, typically Team USA and Team Canada invite one PR representative from a member club to join their staff because the USA hockey people have not worked with the NHL players as often, or at least not in several years. Most of the players on Team USA have come up through the development program, uh, but they've moved on. So they invite one extra person, usually a team person. And I had uh, reached out to USA Hockey a year or so before the Olympics and, you know, just threw my hat in the ring, said I'd love to be considered and so on. And it turned out uh, when they selected me, it turned out to be one of the real highlights of my career being part of the Olympic team, you know, we've all 
watched and uh, ironically we're talking a couple days right around the anniversary of the 1980 gold medal game but you know being part of it was really a special time and you know team usa we went we it was a a younger team when, when it was selected and i think on the world scene team usa was viewed as an, a scrappy underdog you know who knows where they'll finish you know maybe they can medal if they're fortunate the management team which was headed up by brian burke and david poyle really assembled a team you know not necessarily the greatest individual skills but collectively they really tried to fill specific roles on that so you know we had ryan miller as our goalie who had a terrific olympics but then you know players that everybody has followed for years like ryan Suter, zach parise patrick kane ryan kessler and so on you know, they came together. We went into the Olympics, again, a little uncertain, went undefeated in the preliminary round. And I will never forget these Olympics were in Vancouver. So you can imagine the pressure on Team Canada playing in yeah, their yeah. Home, home territory. So yeah. we had to play Canada in the preliminary round and Team USA played great and won five to three. And I can remember the Canadian fans were just <laughs> devastated by that loss. And I actually walked from the arena back to the uh, media center, which was, I don't know, three quarters of a mile away. And I had USA gear on. And I never even gave it a thought till I was out on the street, but it probably wasn't the safest walk <laughs> I was ever on. Let's put yeah. it that way. They yeah. were really unhappy. Uh, but so we were undefeated in pool play. Then went in and uh, I think we beat Norway in the quarterfinals, then beat Finland, which I thought was going to be a really tough game. But uh, it was one of those games where everything came together and Team USA scored four or five goals in the first period and the game was actually over by then. So into the gold medal game against Team Canada in their own arena in Vancouver. And it was a, uh, I think it was two to one with... Uh, Two minutes to go and I was down behind the one goal because uh, there's what they call a mix zone is what the players have to go through after games and that's where all the media are and they just call out the players they want to talk to as opposed to NHL and other team sports where you open the locker room and they come in just this mix zone so I was just down there getting ready and USA is down by a goal and then Zach Parise scores a dramatic tying goal in the last minute and I'm down there and there's nothing but Canadian people down there. Oh my gosh. They were, they were beside themselves. Yeah. They, they were already getting fitted for their rings and getting their medals and this and that. And, uh, you know, here now we're going to overtime and, uh, you know, I was thrilled, frankly. I, I thought if we got to a medal, that was going to be terrific. But then, when, obviously, once you get to the gold medal game, you want to win it. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, Crosby scored the, the golden goal in, in overtime. But it was, a, it was a terrific game and just a, uh, an awesome experience. Uh, oh, I bet. I, uh, I was that's... lucky enough to uh, get a ticket to go to the opening ceremonies. And, uh, you know, you, you hear a lot about it. But until you're really there and experiencing it, you, you really get a feel for what the national pride is all about, no matter which country you're, you're there representing. Uh, it, it was a really 
awesome moment. And I was able to bring my family out for a couple of days early on. So they got to experience the Olympics as well. And uh, so it's, a, it, it's an a experience that we all talk about and we all got to share. That's very cool. That's, that's really awesome. Well, and we actually have a lot of Canadian listeners of this show. So, you know, you, you may, you may still get a few, you know, some hate mail or something. From, well, although, no, Canada, they, they ended up with the medal. So they ended up winning. So they, yeah, was, I was going to say they got it. It was a momentary. Yeah. And, <laughs> and look, I don't know that I've, I, I have to say, it, I don't know that I've ever met a Canadian that, that isn't absolutely polite and nice. So it's hard for me to imagine you know, Canadian being upset. Uh, I mean, uh, I can imagine being upset over losing, but it's hard. To, you know, I, I don't know what that looks like. I, I feel know, like man. it would be a very polite upset. It's very different <laughs> I feel like, in the Olympics. Man. Yeah, that's it's, probably true. Yeah, it's a whole different ball game, man. Yeah, and it's for your country. That's probably true. Well, look, we've kept you a long time, and uh, I know you probably want to get on with with your evening. And so, but this has been absolutely a lot of fun and fascinating to hear all your stories and and just learn more about your experiences and and the, the time and career you had in in professional hockey so jerry thanks so much for coming back on the show and being willing to spend the time with us we really enjoyed it well thank you both it was my pleasure and i'm happy to do it anytime uh, one thing i'm not short on is the ability to talk so <laughs> and, well, and that was the greatest thing of my career is when you work in sports you end up with a lot of great stories and you know, I'm happy to share them uh, anytime and anywhere. I can only imagine. You'll have to like. You'll have to. You need to get a book deal, Jerry, and and, and <laughs> you know, put together like all the greatest stories of professional hockey from your time in the league. You know, uh, I'll work on that. I'll I'll be first in line to buy that. Perfect. One, so. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you, Jerry. We we will uh, we'll talk with you later. Okay, guys. Thank you. Good Take to care. see you both. All right. Well, that is going to be the show for today. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Thanks again to Jerry for coming back on the show. It was a ton of fun having him back. And Brandon, why don't you go ahead and take us out? Uh, yeah. Once again, I want to give my thanks to Jerry as well for coming on the show. It was definitely an interesting interview, uh, as was the first one. Um, and then once again, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in and spending some of your time with us. We do want to hear from you. So please message us on social media or email us. That's on our website. If you have questions or ideas or topics for a future show, we'd love to hear from you, so please don't hesitate to reach out. Also, check us out on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And check out our website, www.the615collector.com, and subscribe to our email list. Yeah, and please help us spread the word. Tell a friend about us. We have seen some nice growth, as we mentioned, in the last couple of weeks, so appreciate that. Uh, encourage all your friends to listen to the show and follow us on their podcast outlets and also would appreciate it if you gave us a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on and that will be it show number 70 is in the book so thanks again everyone and we will see you all next week same time same place here on the 615 collective